Hi. It's so often, you know, this kind of um, flashy, here's my pretty skirt and some flashy, passionate facial expression and then a little bit of brrrm on the guitar and we're all supposed to go, ah, flamenco. And it's, I find that really awful. Oh, okay. yeah. 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 I get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to I Don't Get It. This is a podcast about performance in Edmonton. My name is Fonda, and we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. We have a really big, fat episode for you this week. Um, lots of things happened. Uh, so first up, we're going to have a review of uh, Man Up's recent production of Heroes, which was at Mile Zero Dance. Matthew Stepanek joins me for that review. Then we're, there's a review brief that we have. Um, Colleen Fian joined me last night uh, to see The Party at the Citadel, which is being paired with another show called The Candidate, and they're running concurrently at the exact same time with the exact same cast. So there will be a larger review of The Party and The Candidate on next week's episode, but for now we've got Colleen uh, and I doing a quick hot take after of our thoughts on The Party uh, right after we saw it last night. And finally, we have a nice interview with Jane Ogilvie of the Edmonton Flamenco Festival talking about all of the um, wonderfully addictive things about flamenco and uh, and its and its glories. So um, I'm just going to run straight through all of those and uh, and then I'll catch up back at the end um, with, uh, with some ads and our listings so please please enjoy all of these guests hello everyone thank you um thank you so much to this very special guest who's joining us for um a review of 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 a very interesting show that we saw at mile zero dance um earlier today um hello matt how are you i'm doing well how are you fonda Doing all right. Um, can you just give a give our um, listeners a little reminder of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am uh, one of the co-hosts of Let's Get Lit, which is a drunk poetry podcast where we get together and uh, with Rayanne Haynes, uh, myself and her, uh, talk about um, various poets in the Edmonton and like Western Canadian community and uh, drink wine. And I'm also just a freelance writer in town and uh, run a literary magazine called Glass Buffalo. And one of the projects that um, that I recall uh, most fondly of yours in the last year was, um, uh, you know, something responding to RuPaul's Drag Race. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess I am also a poet. And uh, last year, um, while RuPaul's Drag Race season 10 was airing on TV, uh, every week I would write a poem that was inspired by the queen that was eliminated. Um, and so I would kind of just uh, take stories lines and things that and things that were said on the show and like other uh, kind of like things that were talked about in terms of politics and queer identity and kind of relate to that with my own experiences and craft a poem about it so I have um, some experience in that of just like listening to queer stories and relating my own queer experiences to them yeah and it was cool it was turned into something called a chapbook was it not yeah yeah so all uh i guess there was 14 queens um are have a poem each published in this chapbook called relying on that body which i put out through um glass buffalo publishing and um yeah 
What is a chapbook, Matt? So a chapbook is just like, uh, like I think the, the term originally comes from cheat book. Mm. Um, so it's just like a smaller book that's kind of stapled together. It's about the size of like if you folded a printer sheet in half. Um, and uh, it's usually something that like poets put together when they don't have like a full collection. You know, that's usually like 60 to 100 pages. So chapbooks are smaller that they're 20 to 40 um, pages and I think mine was only like 28 uh, I guess would make sense for math. Sorry I'm geeking out a little bit here because I just came from um, a, a, a zine fair in mm-hmm. Tokyo. Is, is a chapbook different than a zine? Yes because like a zine is even more cheap because um, <laughs> like a zine can be like one sheet of paper that you've kind of folded together and like kind of created like a different sheet from and like the, the thing about a zine is like often those are in black and white and like to reproduce them you like photocopy them um and so you know you can kind of just take one sheet and then like photocopy it and then like you know fold it in a way so that like that's the zine every time but a chapbook might be like multiple pages that you like staple together and you can do that for zines too but i think a chapbook will usually kind of like focus just on like one short story or like or poetry and is used in that way whereas like a zine um is a lot of times like they can be more like um personal narratives um you know like they're just sort of something that you just start putting together there's a lot more like art involved in a zine and it's a lot of like pasting and like photocopy collage type stuff yeah collage things whereas like i think a chapbook is just kind of like a really small book that has like a very specific theme that the same way a zine could do so definitely more text okay cool thank you for that i just needed to you you do indulge me on that for me (laughs) love talking um well (laughs) well so so what did we see tonight um, we saw Man Up, uh, Heroes, um, at Mile Zero Dance, um, and yeah, it was like a, a performance, uh, that just explored the idea of, um, hero in modern culture and whether or not we as people should have heroes and what it means, you know, particularly as a man, um, to have a hero. So it was just an, ex- an exploration of like masculinity and hero culture, and if you were to describe the Man Up um, dance company, um, so how how would you describe them? What 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 makes them Man Up <laughs> as opposed to anyone else? Yeah. Um, well, I think they're kind of playing on that that irony um, of like what does it mean to be a man? Um, so they're exploring like traditional ideas of masculinity and just trying to trouble that. Um, by also like acknowledging that they're very feminine side. So like every all um, I be- I believe all of like well all the four performers are queer and gay in some way. Um, so they're just kind of exploring their identity and like that idea like as they were growing up, being told that they needed to man up and like acknowledge more of their masculine side and shut off that femininity. And so they kind of create these dance performances and shows around it to kind of like show how like their feminine sides can also be their stronger sides. Mm. And I feel like that their man up title is sort of a direct pun on the fact that they dance in heels often. Yes. Yeah. I actually, I hadn't really thought about that before where they are like, they are raised men because, (laughs) uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're in heels for the whole show Mm -hmm. and often like, you know, colorful costumes, makeup, like everything that you wouldn't traditionally expect to see on like a, a male performer. 
Yeah. And so I, I guess the format of the show is 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 sort of like a burlesque show. There's a there's some group numbers and then some solo numbers. I feel like this company tries to take it to um, an, a narrative level, though. And you've seen a number of the Man Up shows before. Um, so um, maybe give us an idea of what they were trying to tell us uh, with Heroes. Heroes, to me, I think was kind of trying to look at um, this idea of that traditional patriarchal hero that we have. So um, superheroes like Batman and, and um, Superman, uh, which didn't come to me as easily as it should have been. It was just, <laughs> you know, one of the words was still the same in that. There were some pretty blatant Batman and Superman references in the show. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was really worried going into it when they like talked about heroes and it would be about like comic book characters and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't actually know the Marvel and DC universe that well. Maybe I won't understand it but it was like still a gay accessible level where i didn't have Mm -hmm. to have seen all these movies to get what they were talking about but um yeah so they were um looking at you know like the sort of characters that we read about the heroes that like we put on pedestals and sort of worship and like um who we try to live up to and like you know there's that idea that i think one of the um actors said or i guess dancers um that they're like kind of in a mixed role in that way um you know that we we should never meet our heroes because you know they're going to disappoint us in some way so um isn't that terrifying god (laughs) it always is but like every once in a while you do meet like a good hero there's a lot of bad heroes and they're just as you wish they were and that's great yeah yeah like i just want to shout out to zadie smith and how wonderful she was to meet anyways um she's a great hero (laughs) silly side note in the literary world actually we do get to meet a lot of our heroes because of our roles in festivals and other things and 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 yeah i feel like writer heroes are often fairly good (laughs) well yeah because like they're like we're just we're just as like two writers ourselves like we're just very simple people who like just go from event to event are just grateful to be paid money for like anything (laughs) that like i don't know there's 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 a few only a few writers that really put on airs because like most of us just are um, and they're usually like the really big name self-help writers, just FYI. <laughs> yeah, watch out for them. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, this show was just trying to trouble that idea of what it means to be a hero. What, how do we define what a hero is? Um, yeah, like, do should we have heroes at all? Um, and whether or not that hit all the notes that it was supposed to is maybe something we could discuss. Yeah, I mean, so the show starts out with, um, you know, there, there's a kind of like sort of big saucy group number. Everyone's cheering. I think that this brought a really interesting change to the Spacio Performativo space. Um, considering some of the performances that I've seen with Mile Zero Dance and that I know Mile Zero regularly programs, this is, was felt like a huge departure for them. Not ideal logically or anything but just like it was super accessible and really just kind of like just fun enjoyable they they did have some heavier themes that they tried to touch on um but at the same time it was just sort of almost like a conventional burlesque show except with all men um Now, so they had the big group number to start, and then they kind of went into solo pieces or monologues that were sort of expounding a little bit more on the different ideas of heroes that they had. I thought some of the more um, really kind of beautiful, interesting moments were um, uh, Givenchy's song. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name of the song, but it was really well sung, nicely done. 
One of those traditional Broadway hits that, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. a leading lady would put on at some point. Absolutely. And then and then the monologue that um, <laughs> Fitzgerald, Bitch William III, who we do know is Joshua Wolchansky, who did all of the choreography. Um, he uh, was speaking about as a child playing with doll houses and, and a set of dolls and how the dolls in the house were a couple and how they had like a really, you know, like great life. Um, and by the end of the monologue, you read realize that it's Batman and Robin and it's just kind of like actually really lovely and wonderful how parallel it is to um you know how how girls see sometimes playing with dolls and dollhouses and frankly even as girls when you were playing with two girls in a dollhouse you didn't really notice that it was anything that it's not not conventionally supposed to be or, or, or conventionally thought of. Um, so, yeah. And then that led into a really great Lois and Superman number, which I thought Lois, the Lois Lane played by Rusty, Rusty Kingfisher. We don't, we don't know. Um, his true identity. His, his true identity other <laughs> his, than Rusty Kingfisher. And I'm like, why is Rusty Kingfisher a good, uh, like burlesque name? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I mean, Okay, well, it's something you have to think twice about touching, you know, like, you're like, oh, a kingfisher that sounds like this, this, this desirable object, but it's rusty, you know, Mm. think think twice about what kind of, you know, cuts and tetanus, tetanus, tetanus shots, you know, I can't, I can't actually get tetanus shots. It's a thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I I didn't know that about you. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Just in case I ever step on a rusty nail around you. (laughs) Oh, okay. Like what? What's like? What would I do at that moment? I would probably have to go get others kind of some kind of like severe antibiotic or something like that. Uh, okay. Anyhow, um, back to the show. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, well, what were you? What were some of the segments that really um stuck with you, or or um that you wanted to kind of like bring up and chat about a little bit more? Well, I mean, I. I... Um, in terms of like, enjoyment, I really liked the, uh, you know, Lois Lane and superhero, um, I guess, skit that sort of happened because like they were trying to talk about how, you know, um, men are usually the ones who are like saving the day and have all the power. But then also like there's these characters like Lois Lane, who's like still has some intelligence and like can kind of like, you know, get what she wants and do all these things. But she still at the end of the day needs to be rescued by um, Superman. So like, I think the performance was kind of critiquing that um, because we see Superman come in and all Lois Lane wants from him is to just like pour her a glass of wine Mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of like fill her needs and like scratch an itch. Um, And I, I really liked that commentary on like, kind of like, Oh yeah. Like do, do male figures always need to be the heroes and things or can like the women also have their own agency? and like get what they need mm-hmm. um, in those roles. And interestingly, the Lois Lane part, uh, the, the one I identified with most, was really the one clear part in the show where one of them was playing a woman. Um, and and the rest, the, frankly, the rest of the time, it, even though they're in makeup and heels and things, they're all still actually playing men. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're still all like male identifying actors in the show. And I think that's kind of like one of the differences that we were talking about earlier um, about like drag and burlesque performances where like usually like in drag, um, you have a man performing as a woman and he's like also like kind of like a hyper 
a hyper version of a woman. Whereas I think with Man Up, what they're just trying to do is like to show men in different ways so that like, you know, like there's still like a masculinity to wearing heels. There's a masculinity to wearing like amazing glitter makeup and like beautiful shades of lipstick um, that you don't need to like be less of a man just because that you um, are, you know, wearing these more traditionally feminized um, objects. For sure. Now, I do want to talk about Bo Creep's monologue because that was one that we both sort of came away with and had a little bit of mixed feelings about. Um, uh, maybe give it, give us a just sort of a breakdown about, about what he talked about. Yeah, well, like, I think earlier in the show, um, and I had kind of talked about this a little bit, where, like, we're talking about, like, what heroes need to be taken off of pedestals and like why do we hero worship people and so naturally I think the conversation circles around me too even though I don't believe any of the performers in the show actually use the phrase Um, and so um, I was kind of expecting more of a, a nuanced and complex kind of like um, look at Me Too and, like, what it means to, like, be a responsible hero and to be, like, a, a, a decent person. Um, and we don't really see it in any other of the parts of the show until, like, Bo Creep kind of comes back to, to, to share a monologue with everybody because the show's also, like, split up between each of the different dancers um, kind of having their solo moment to kind of share something with the audience. And Bo Creep talks about... Um, you know how um, the how how gleeful he felt at having like the Me Too movement happen and starting to see like abusers getting like you know taken down for their abuse, um, and then he talks about how like he um, enjoyed like oh no then he started to feel anxious and worried when he saw his own heroes um, being treated the same way and getting taken down, and I think. Um, we were kind of missing at a lot of different points in the show, like a definition of or like a defining factor of like who were these people or like what what was being taken down. Like, you know, it's very like commonplace in like in the idea that like Me Too has just kind of like seeped into how we respond to pop culture and like other elements of culture. But like also like if you're going to talk about it, I think we need to name the abusers. And I think it would have been a more complex conversation if he had said like, you know, what it was that. Um, made him question, like, you know, his own um, heroes being removed. And, like, maybe, like, you know, did he rebel against that for a bit? Because I think in a lot of times, like, when we first hear um, about someone that we, you know, hero-worshipped um, being called an abuser, like, yeah, we do have that second thought. But then, like, you know, we do a lot of complicated work to make sure that we understand that, like, maybe those people don't deserve um, the center stage anymore. Well, hopefully we do. Well, hopefully we do, yeah. <laughs> like, there's some people that, that don't do that, but, um, you know, and, like, some of them that, like, still come out of their, like, holes, like Louis C.K. and think that it's, like, all okay. But, um... Well, but... and, yeah, and there was no naming of names. There was no... There there wasn't really any specifics into what Bo Creep was really talking about or who Bo Creep was really talking about other than himself. He admitted himself. He knew that he was kind of a terrible person and it felt a little glossed over. Yeah. And it, it made, it made me uncomfortable um, listening to it because like in some ways, even though he's not really talking about like why any of these people, like they're abusers and they're like, he would say victims and then kind of make the joke to be like survivors. And well, I guess it's not really a joke, but like, you know, like it was like the wordplay that he was trying to like point out that like, these are survivors. He would deliberately pause after victims and say, no, survivors. Yeah. Right. 
And, but like, we don't know what they were survivors of. And so like him admitting that like he was a shitty person and doesn't remember what he did, um, didn't quite like, you know, like it made me wonder, like, am I at a show with a sexual abuser? Am I like, you know, like, was it just like he was mean to people? Like he gossiped too much? Like in what ways was he challenging his own role as a performer and like as a, a, a person on center stage and holding stage and like, you know, holding the attention of an audience? And, um, the other thing that kind of like bothered me about it too was just like he he admitted that he you know like he did do the, the work of sort of saying like um i'm not asking you know for pity or like anything like i'm always going to be working towards being a better person but the thing is is like with the type of audience that we had everyone was cheering and like applauding him for like the monologue that he was giving but they you know they weren't really aware of what they were cheering or applauding for yeah, because there was there was so much vagueness about it. Like it, it it just didn't it didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like cheering that part necessarily because I yeah exactly you don't know what he's really talking about. Yeah, like he's just uh, and like I mean like I mean it is good to say that like we're always constantly improving as people. But like I think a, a lot of like when we're having conversations about like. Um, did Louis C.K. apologize enough? Like, it's probably, it's like, it's usually what's at fault there is that he never really shows any kind of remorse or guilt or like names what he does. And so in the same way, when we have this monologue, we have a person like admitting that maybe they did something bad, but they don't remember because they were too drunk. And so now we're just all sitting here, like, well, some of us who are maybe thinking more critically than the other people in the show, because like, um, I think a lot of ways burlesque just ask us to cheer rather than to do a lot of thinking. Um, We're not really sure um, what you know, we're actually asking to like kind of forgive. It's interesting because the burlesque form, I feel like audiences are attracted in a lot of ways or audiences cheer and are so supportive because burlesque in itself um, calls for a certain vulnerability in the performers to begin with. And so that's why there's that like very vocal support all the time. Um, And then when there's a certain type of vulnerability that you feel is maybe like that you not that you don't want to support them, their admission, but you don't want to support it with cheering. What do you do in a Blair's performance? You know, like <laughs> you, you just kind of sit there quietly and just wonder what everyone else is responding to, I guess. But I think it's kind of been the success of like former Man Up shows because like it is something that they've been doing in previous shows that it's something that should be celebrated. Like look at these like men, you know, performing in more of a feminine way and like celebrating their feminine side and celebrating their sexuality like all of that naturally lends itself to the burlesque conversation but i think this idea some of the ideas that they were trying to posit in heroes um you know didn't quite fit the genre that they wanted to and it kind of leaves you feeling a little bit uncomfortable and cold Mm-hmm. Uh, on a final note, because we're book people, mm-hmm. how did you feel about Givenchy's book list? Yeah, so there was a moment um, where Givenchy, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm saying that wrong. I think it's spelled like G dot Vinci, but like Givenchy. Givenchy. Yeah, I just, I'm not doing it with the right flair to it. You know, like um, the fashion Givenchy. Yeah, I, God, I don't know anything about fashion. I'm a, a bad gay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he comes out with, uh, you know, kind of ready to prep his monologue about um, what heroes mean to him. And he basically comes out and says, like, I 
couldn't find a definition for hero, um, which is sort of interesting because I didn't think we got one in the show either. Um, and he's got a, a, a three different books that he like thought had ideas about heroes in them and that meant a lot to him. And um, one of them was Vivek Shreya's uh, I'm Afraid of Men, um, which is which is brilliant. And I love that book. But also um, I, the description that he gave of it, of like Vivek talking about morality, I never really thought that that came up in her book. Um, so that just like was kind of like, I don't think anyone else in the audience was familiar with Vivek as much as like Fonda and I were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I just kind of like raised my eyebrows at that moment where I was like, yeah, like let's shout out Vivek's book, like any point that <laughs> we can you and but, i were like woo yeah. yeah like oh yeah we love vivek like let's talk about it but like is vivek wrestling with morality like there was a point of like power structures and stuff but i don't think she's ever trying to put anyone on a pedestal she's just trying to like l- look at like i don't like why she's afraid i don't it, it was it was a weird choice um especially there- next to mark manson the art subtle art of giving a fu- not giving a fuck like i couldn't I'm like, what is that? What is that book doing in this show? Yeah, like it, it was, it was, it was three interesting books that like Vivek's like an intelligent academic, and then I guess Mark, I, I don't have yeah, the, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Like it's sort it, of like a pop culture help, self help kind of type thing. Like, yeah, like it just like it's sort of fluffy, but also like offers some good tips about like you yeah, know like, like how we feel about things, and like I I think like what um, like opposite of Jordan Peterson, but still like you know healthy tips for living life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then at the end, like Brené Brown, who was also, um, like, I guess, like a little bit of a hero in terms of like her way of thinking. We love Brené Brown. Yeah, yeah. But it was just like, it was a random book that I don't even remember the title of it. Whereas I thought like, you know, bringing out something like Daring to Lead is like an interesting conversation, like where Brené like talks about like, what's our responsibility as a leader in terms of like, also our fear in leading. Um, and so, yeah, like I just... I was like, you know, I could have curated a better book list. <laughs> well, 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 we won't talk about the book lists we would have curated. <laughs> but I mean, Brené Brown also talks about like the vulnerability um, and shame uh, in, in, that men feel differently than women do. And I feel that that could have been valuable to have been brought up too when, if, when bringing up Brené Brown in general. Um, but in, in this show in particular. But anyway, well, well that what that's well, I mean, what it is. <laughs> adding like, like talking Brené in that way, like also Vivek, like that is 100% what she wrestles with and everything that, that she does is just like kind of like, what does it mean to be like, to operate in a space with men? And also like, um, there's one of my favorite parts about her book is just like where she's talking about like um being in a relationship with a man and like what it means to also love men where you're still like not comfortable or like you know in certain ways that like their toxic masculinity always exists Mm -hmm. and so i think like you know if you're gonna bring out those books like talk about them in that way rather than like good and evil and morality like i think um what heroes was like sort of posited but could have like done a little bit more more work on is like just like the role of like putting men into hero positions rather than women and i think what they do a good job of is like moving women and like feminine um people into those roles of like heroes and i think that's like what would have really like made the show stand out more for me Mm -hmm. what what did you think of the dancing 
Um, I, I liked a lot of the dancing because it's like, it's fun um, from my me not being like a dance expert. Um, you know, it's just like, it's it's sexy. Uh, it's like burlesque. You know, you're like sitting there admiring all the dancers. Um, I enjoy that part of it. And like, you know, they're, um, they do really like clever things to like kind of also make you laugh in between. So um, yeah, that's my critical response to the dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like they had very like, it was very sassy movement. It was really, really sort of like um, burlesque, burlesque-ish in that way. Um, there was a lot of um, feminine movement with the hips and sort of like um, emphasis on curves in the body. Um, I do like, I felt that they were pretty proficient on the heel although Bo Creep made a very good fool of himself being not as good on the heels I think purposefully um, and that was uh, yeah I, I, I feel like I mean I appreciate that I've seen um, companies where you know men dance on point shoes for the entire show and um, men in heels is not an entirely unique thing. Uh, we've seen some contemporary dance companies do that too. Um, but in in terms of this show, I feel that it's really kind of like part of the identity that they put forward as part of their burlesque act. Um, and so, and, uh, and of course, um, in particular, you know, um, the uh, the choreography that Joshua Wolchanski is doing um, really lends well, and he knows how to make them look great. I think, and and so that was I think that in in that way it was um, it was successful. Yeah, and like I um, I'm not a dance expert, but I want to hear a little bit more about um, what you thought of you know Josh's sort of um, sing- singular moment where he was performing in between everybody else because like usually we'd have like you know uh, multi-dancer numbers um but then we do get one moment where he is like you know usually the dance would come alongside like pop songs or anything but then there's a moment where he's sort of performing to um you know more a, a classical style music if that's appropriate to say oh, yeah there's that one very there was the one sort of abstract dance moment that 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 appeared um and joshua you know unfortunately the space doesn't lend well to sight lines with a lot of the floor work but what it felt like he was doing was sort of like running his fingers through some metaphorical sand that was on the ground um and if i'm frankly in an odd way if i was thinking about the heroes theme you asked me you're just like what did that piece make you think of and i was like well if he's playing with sand on a beach makes me think of beaches oh you know there's that Bette Midler song hero <laughs> in beaches the movie <laughs> but that's not what the song was about at all um but the, like it was um it was a much more sort of like contemporary and flowy piece I feel that it was I don't I'm, I'm not sure what they were trying to do in terms of setting it right after the Lois Lane Superman piece and leading into something else um, in particular because the last time you saw Josh he was talking about the Batman and Robin dollhouse um, so I'm, I don't really know I don't really know about the placement the piece itself was very nice danced very well he's an incredible mover um, but at the same time, what did it tell me? I'm I'm not too I'm not too sure. I so, don't I don't really know. So perhaps you could say that like I don't get it would be I 
I probably don't get it. I, I, I think I don't get it. Maybe Bette Midler would help. But <laughs> Bette Midler helps a lot. Like, Bette Midler makes me understand a lot of, like, feelings and emotions that I didn't think I could feel before. I think she helps people with a lot of things, which is why she's endeared to this day and... I think is still playing Hello Dolly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, she might still be in it. Yeah, like she's still she's still a hero in she's, many ways. Ben Miller is a fucking hero. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt, for being back on. Um, I don't get it. This was really fun. I'm really glad we got to see the show together. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on. All right, so this is a little bit of a hot take just after we've come out of, um, well, Colleen. Hello, Colleen. Hi, nice to be back in a different form than usual. Yes, not the opera, definitely. Definitely not not the the opera. opera. (laughs) Um, What did we just see? We just saw the party at the Citadel Theater. It's it's like a a new, like a brand new play, brand new play um, pairing conceived by Daryl Cloran and Kat Sandler um, and written by... Cat Sandler. Sandler. <laughs> um, so, what was sort of the gist of, that we? Um, we're gonna we're gonna just give like a really quick, short little thing tonight about the yeah. party because it has to be, I think, properly reviewed with its pairing, which is the candidate, which we're seeing next Thursday. But Colleen, what was the party? What was what was the gist of the party? What was it really about? Well, it almost felt like entering into like a murder mystery party where you go and there's all these characters and they get introduced to you and you're sitting at a table. Um, sort of sort of part of the show to some extent. People are shaking hands with you and serving you hors d'oeuvres, which is lovely. Um, and, and it's all about this contest between the two um, potential candidates for the leadership of, of one party. Yeah, so the... And the hosted, of course, by an eccentric billionaire. Yeah, hosted, of course, by one of the patrons of the party. <laughs> um, and so, um, and you were talking about um, the people at the party being served. I want to point out brilliantly the role played um, of the party server was by Rachel Bowron. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm really excited to see how all of these characters sort of translate into the next show. Because the candidate has an enti- the entirely same cast, um, and they're running back and forth between the shows. What was interesting was that you could really tell there were a couple of scenes. We saw it on the first public showing um, when both shows were running. You could really tell a couple of the scenes where they were not only out of breath, but also just sort of stalling to wait for someone else to show up. Because, yeah, the whole, the whole I guess, thing is that the, the shows run concurrently at the Citadel in two different theaters, and the actors have to run back and forth between the theater the theaters to do to do the scenes and so at the beginning of the show uh, Daryl actually explains that perhaps now and again you'll see an actor a little bit late and running in out of breath and it it just creates sort of an urgency and and a playfulness to the whole thing and it's really exciting to, and, and I'm really excited to see the next one because I want to see how it all sort of fits together. Yeah, I'm very curious now how they try and kind of like stagger the scenes and the rhythm of the shows. Um, and I'm really interested to see which characters make it to the next show, whereas I'm assuming some of them will change and become different people altogether. Yeah, like I, 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 I'm also kind of assuming that not all of the same characters will be in the next show, but the same performers are all part of the same cast. Oh, and the party is chronologically in the story set a few months before the candidate. Mm -hmm. So I think that we saw it in the right order, at least. We saw the right one first. (laughs) Um, Also, I just want to take a short second to gush because Martha Burns was in the show and I... I've loved Martha Burns in Slings and Arrows for a very long time and to see her on an Edmonton stage, I was like... 
heck yes! <laughs> and you know, for like Me Too movements out there, like you're just there's a bit in the second act where you're just like Me Tooing all over the place. It's, yeah. yeah, and and she really brings it home there, and it was great. So, well, stay tuned for next week's episode when we after we see the candidate and we talk about both plays in a lot more detail and in order. Um, but yeah, thanks, Colleen, for um, coming on this wild ride. Uh, at least part one. To be continued. (laughs) Bye. Hello, everyone. I'm here with a very special guest today. I'm here to uh, learn us some things about a really special dance form, one that's close to my heart. Um, We're going to talk about flamenco today with Jane Ogilvie of the Edmonton Flamenco Festival. Hello, Jane. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, Can you let's start by um, telling us a little bit about who you are and, and how you came to the flamenco world? Oh, okay. So I'm a local, I'm an Edmonton dance teacher, and um, I came to flamenco traveling around Spain. I danced a lot as a kid. I really missed dance. I wanted to get back into dance. And then I showed up in Seville during the feria. There was, you know, flamenco everywhere, but also in that kind of touristy way. But some part of me went, oh, this is that thing I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. And then when I realized, oh, this is like a full art form, I just fell right into it. And I think my story is every flamenco story. You know, everyone you talk to, they go, I don't know how it happened, but here I am. I'm, I can't get away now. I saw it and I loved it. And yes. I needed, I needed to have, have it be part of my life. That's <laughs> what happens. People all over the world, that's literally their story. I just read an interview this morning with a woman from Vancouver and that's what she said. She was like, I don't know what happened, but it caught me and now I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, other than, we'll talk about the festival proper, of course, but what is um, what happens in flamenco in Edmonton year round? What, what do you do year round? Well, so I teach classes uh, weekly. I have five levels I teach and um, there are, there are lots of different things. There's other teachers. There's um, We have a local flamenco society that has a cafe cante every month where people get together and they practice singing and clapping because clapping rhythms is a big part of flamenco. Mm-hmm. And then uh, actually they have a community show in May of local students and performers get together. And it's, uh, yeah, no, there's lots going on. It's a good, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only teacher. There's there's a few few of us, yeah. <laughs> cool. And so why, why start the Flamenco Festival? Tell us a little bit about, you know, the format of the festival. What is it and how did it begin? So it began because I don't have a student performance. I'm not a teacher that does a year-end student performance. And I gathered all my students one day to say, I know you want to perform. What do you want to do? Let's toss some ideas around. And we got to my student, Kat Moores, who went, well, I've noticed these other festivals. Why why aren't we having a festival? And I had been talking about it with some of my peers, but it's one of those things that just seems so daunting. And she was really keen. And I went, okay, that's it. We're going to talk. And both her and I were like, we can do this. We'll do it. And that's that's how it started. So the first year... Actually, the first year we had to cancel because <laughs> we had a passport problem at the last minute. It was really oh, interesting. No. Yeah, it was really interesting. But that's okay. It was a good learning curve. And in fact, that artist came last year. That was our artist that came last year. But um, the first couple of years we had a flash mob because that's a pretty common flamenco festival thing. You get a flash mob going and the community learns it and they're showing it all over town. And uh, we have a fundraiser usually in the fall, which is local performers. And then we invite a couple of Canadian performers. So often we bring a dancer, singer from Vancouver. We'll bring a guitarist from Calgary, that kind of thing. And then uh, when the festival's on, we have a main stage show at the Windspear. And then we have workshops in song, dance, and guitar for the flamenco community. So we get workshop participants from all over the country that come 
Wow. Yeah. How yeah. many other flamenco festivals are there in Canada? Do you know what I mean? Well, I've never counted them. But yeah, we have a list on our website because we all know each other. You know, like flamencos, it's such a unique art form and it takes so much expertise. You quickly get to know, oh, well, I need... I need a singer, and the two singers I know are busy. I better call to some other city. And, and then you realize all the work you're putting in to build this in your own community. Somebody's doing that in another community, and it's much easier if you all work together. And So, yeah. Start yeah. the network. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, so um, tell us a little bit. I You know, I love to learn about different forms of dance. Um, I want the audience to hear about flamenco and all of its glory. So let's start maybe, um, what are the origins of flamenco? Oh, no, no. I am not the person to answer that. I am definitely not the person to answer that. You know, so we're talking the south of Spain and all the different influences that have come through there in history, you know, from India, from the Moors, all there, all of that is, is part of it. So, yeah, I'm not an expert on the origins of it. It's on so, the super, like, the yes. super back page history. Yes. Um, no. But, well, let's then talk a little bit more about the character characteristics of the dance style itself. Um, so the the movements and also the, um, the components of what make up a flamenco performance. Okay, so there's um, dance, obviously, and the dance has uh, percussive footwork. So as a dancer, you're a percussionist as well. And uh, also these hand movements, they're called floreo, meaning flowers. So you've seen a lot of that probably. And of course, you know, the beautiful dresses, that kind of thing. But it also can be really passionate and sometimes a little bit ugly in its passion. Like mm-hmm. it's not, you're not aiming to be beautiful. You're aiming to express. So that's really, that's exciting for me anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there'll be um, singers and uh, guitar and sometimes percussion. Sometimes pr- people bring in other instruments. But it's really the interaction of all of those. It's not... It's not like, you know, people sit down and go, well, I'm going to play this piece of music and it has this, this is ex- it from start to end and you just choreograph your piece to it and we'll just perform that. It's it's more like, we're going to do this song form and the dancer might be like, well, I have, you know, I need you to do a verse and then I need a falsetta and the guitars might be like, I have this falsetta, but I can make it longer or shorter. And then in the moment, you're kind of playing with that a little bit, you know, so there's certain little codes of, well, at this moment, I could respond as a dancer. At this moment, as the person giving clapping, I could change how I clap. And and so you you get to know that. And then in the moment, you're really, you know, like when you're performing, you're not just performing some crazy rehearsed thing. You know, you're really responding to the people you're mm-hmm, working with. Mm-hmm. That's, that's for me, I think, what keeps people addicted. When you start learning, you go, oh, this is never ending. I could learn this forever. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. They're, like uh, in the performances that I have seen, um, there's there seems to be this sort of like amazing conversation that's going on um, between the performers and and not not even just from the say the singer using actual like words mm. um, but but you know the clapping and the and the percussion changes in a lot of ways and it's like and it yeah it's call and response almost a it little is, bit yeah. and in the audience too you're encouraged to you know like. Yeah, LA or you know <laughs> That's like when right. you really like something because I can't I honestly can't sit still while I'm watching flamenco it's sometimes it's so impressive um yeah yeah it's well that's an interesting thing um so we usually give a little chat about that response from the audience at the beginning because people sometimes are like why is this person beside me yelling out and they get angry and not realizing that's really how it goes and then also it's really hard for performers when there's no response because Mm -hmm. normally like when you're in Spain the audience they're yelling out all the time you know when they when they feel called to and here in North America we're so quiet (laughs) and sometimes you're on stage going the energy is so low don't they like us what's going on Mm -hmm. so well so maybe talk a little bit about what sort of setting you would 
say normally, I put that in air mm-hmm. quotes, see a flamenco performance because the Winspear Center feels like a very sort of like heightened um, and different way that you would see flamenco as opposed to going to, you know, sort of either a touristy or a very, you know, other sort of show in Spain. It's true. Yeah, the Winspears, it's such a big stage. It's um, so we try to we try to make it more intimate with the lighting just because I I think you can still have that experience. But um, yeah, in Spain, I would see it in a smaller venue. Usually I don't tend to go to the touristy ones, not that the performers aren't great, but the audience is often hard to deal with. (laughs) But um, yeah, you would see it in a smaller venue and uh, definitely more intimate. That's definitely how how I usually tend to see it. Yeah, Yeah. you're more you're more up close. Um, I I I don't know. I don't recall like um, many um, raised stages, but a lot of times the stage will be raised so you can see the feet. Yes. Yeah, um, that's a little right. bit better. And also um, being able to see that expression, whether it is, um, you know, very, uh, say, kind of ugly or dramatic. Um, you know, I often when we're watching contemporary dance, I'll, I'll say, you know, could they just have some sort of emotion on their face? <laughs> <laughs> would, would a smile or a frown, you know, really break things? Whereas flamenco is completely the opposite. Right? It is. And so it's so funny because so often I hear the opposite. I hear people going, must they frown all the time? Boy, they're really unhappy, you know. <laughs> and I just think, oh, we live in such a world where everybody, you got to project that smile. and Especially and, women, right? Yeah. Mm. So it's so, I had so much. The thing that I really love about flamenco is it, the older you are, the the better you get at it because it's your life experience performing. You mm-hmm. know. Yes, I wanted yeah. to ask about this idea of duende. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the past when we've talked about flamenco on this podcast, I've used the word gravitas mm-hmm. to describe um, some of the more mature performers because there's you know there's just this this is wisdom and soul that comes through in the performance with um life experience maybe or just many years even dancing mm. um and it's and also i i'm just refreshed to see dancers past you know even the age of 35 <laughs> yeah well i re- when i started flamenco i was 20 I was 23 and I thought I would never be able to dance again because, you know, you're trained that way as a kid. Oh, you're done. You're too old. You're like 18 and you d- you stop dancing at 12 and so you missed the boat. And in flamenco, it's like, no, no, no. Like, the older you get, the better. The yeah. better, really. How how cool. So, yeah. I love it. Sign me up. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um when a lot of people go to watch dance, especially with a form that they're unfamiliar with, you know, ballet is kind of easy to observe. It's very beautiful, pretty. What should we be watching when we're at a flamenco performance? What are the things that we should notice? Well, I think it's definitely uh, the emotive quality. Like you're you're watching people. It, the, I think the best thing about flamenco is so often they have an emotion and they're not le- they're not giving it to you. They, and there's that push pull of I can feel it, but they're not giving it to me and that I think that really inspires an audience because you're you're sitting there feeling that tension of oh just give it to me and here we would just project it out but in flamenco you'd be like no I you know I want to but I'm not going to and there's there's a really wonderful thing about that and then there's also just the conversation really between the people all the performers that to me is the most fascinating part it's really it's that's to me the most interesting and then the thing we really have to explain to people often I'll well, get a bunch of emails after going could, if you could just tell me what the story they were singing about was <laughs> because you know some art forms there is a story in flamenco 
don't know. There, I mean, sure, some of the verses have a, a, a story to tell, but they're not singing them to tell you that story. You know, that's just their origin. And, and often there are verses you hear over and over and over because they're traditional and that sort of thing. But there, there's no story on stage. The story is the emotion coming out of the performers. That's really what you're watching. Yeah. And what are the sort of different, um, different I, I would say, either sections or parts of a flamenco performance that you would normally see? Other than, you know, the, the team, the crew of... Uh, or the cast that's making up the show on stage. What are the different parts of the show that we're likely to see in a in a in a usual flamenco performance? So you mean like different numbers? Yeah, or? yeah. Usually there's I don't know like six to eight numbers, yes. and they kind of <laughs> and they kind of go through a range of different types of of flamenco. Right. Mm-hmm. So flamenco is divided by song form. And those song forms are emotive. So we were talking earlier about alegrias, which means happiness. So mm-hmm. there, someone will say, I'm going to dance por alegrias, meaning I'm going to dance for alegrias. Mm-hmm. And it'll be this happy number. And then they'll be like dancing for solea, which is a very, very serious, very soulful number. Um, and then sometimes you'll have solo cante, which is singing, mm-hmm. uh, solo guitar, Sometimes there's a sort of, um, in fact, I'm pretty sure in this show we'll have it too, where they'll have the table and they knock out rhythms on the table while they're singing. Oh, the table one, yes. The table there one. There was a table one yes. last year too. There's yeah. a table one every year, which is it's so typical. And I just, that's, I love that, that style and number. Yeah. So really you're seeing different um, palos, they're called, different song forms, which are different. They have different emotional qualities and they have different rhythm uh, patterns to them and different, um, you know, melodic, harmonic Mm-hmm. sort of systems and then um, solo guitar solo this solo that That that's kind of what you're going to see yeah. mm-hmm. um, tell me a little bit about the clapping it's a very sort of specialized thing with it flamenco is. <laughs> it is yeah it's so funny um, when I teach new beginners that's what we start the class with and they're always so surprised because they think well I'm here for a dance class and but as a dancer you have to be able to clap the rhythm mm-hmm. and uh, so there's two there's two sounds there's the low sort of muffled sound and then there's that really high clap that we all want to learn how to do mm-hmm. and then uh, so you're learning a cycle of rhythm they call it the compass which uh, each palo has each song form has a kind of unique cycle and then a million things you can do within it and a million reasons why you would or would not do that and so that's a never-ending learning thing mm-hmm. why are you clapping louder here why are you softer here why is it more intricate here why did you just kind of simplify it here that it's really yeah the clapping's a huge part of it and then you know, sometimes it sounds like they're clapping at this crazy rapid speed, and it's usually two people. And yeah, so, it's a combined yeah. sort of effort, right? And that that like that sort of coordination that you feel is happening on the fly, like without even, yeah, it's 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 a beautiful thing. It is. Um, one thing that I always find a little bit fascinating too is that. Um, uh, as you know, you see it, the the performance sort of progress through the palos. The female dancer usually does a lot of costume changes. Um, and these costumes are sort of iconic to the type of palo that they're doing at the time. Well, I think it's I definitely I think you're not. You're gonna you're not gonna come out in a you know a flashy flowery outfit for something really somber that would be really odd, mm. or coming out you know in all black for this really happy piece. That's sort of how it goes. But there's also um, you know the bata de cola, which is that big long skirt that sometimes they dance in, mm-hmm. and learning how to manipulate that is 
Oh my goodness, it's like a whole other journey and learning. You can dance flamenco forever, and if you've never started that, that is like starting at year one. It yeah. is just a whole thing on its own. It's like its own apparatus it on is. the stage. <laughs> and just the technique to make it float and not flop and mm. kind of, yeah, it's a real thing. And then also the manton, which is a big shawl, like the mm-hmm, technique of mm-hmm. the shawl, or sometimes they'll dance with a fan, those kind of things. So, yeah, those are more... Yeah, just kind of props that, that you can bring in. But it really depends on each dancer, what they like to do and what they're in the mood for, you know. So right. mm-hmm. the dancer this year, I asked her, well, are you coming with your bata de cola? Because some people want classes in that. I don't teach that. And, um, you know, we have a, one teacher that comes in the summer to do it, but it's a really specialized thing. And so when guest dancers come, I'm always like, well, you bring your bata because it's so huge. Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to fit in your suitcase? And she said to me, oh, I actually wasn't thinking of using it in the show. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I could. And so I was <laughs> like, okay, well, let me ask around and see who wants class and then we'll decide. And so in the end, she's going to bring her bata, but I don't know if she's doing it in the show yet. So we'll see. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the performers that are coming this year. Um, their names are, let's see here, I've got them, Sonia Ola and Ismael Fernandez. Yeah. So Sonia, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, Sorry. Yeah. Well. So Ismael came the first year. He was a singer at our first show and um, he came from New York because they have moved to New York. And it's really funny because the first year he was sort of a last minute replacement for another singer that couldn't come. And then because he was coming from New York, he arrived and everybody else didn't because they missed their flight in Amsterdam. And so Kat and I spent the whole day with him waiting for everybody else to arrive. And he ended up having to do our interviews because no one was here to do the interviews. (laughs) And we got to know him really well. And we talked a lot about what he and Sonia do and like kind of set up for this year just because we had this whole day together to talk about it. So, yeah, he comes from a long line of singers, his family. um, He's gypsy so we were talking about this the the gypsies of southern spain they would call them gitanos and that's his family has uh, many generations of singers and um yeah sonia she comes from barcelona she's been dancing in some amazing companies mm-hmm. and then they brought people they like to work with also all these really top performers so it's kind of exciting the dancer they brought with or they're bringing with them as paul vaquero who uh, he's right now performing in the Tablao in Barcelona for the whole month, every night, you know. People people, mm-hmm. people keep writing me when they see our social media posts going, oh, I just saw something in Barcelona, whatever. And I'm like, oh, well, Paul's there right now, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then um, the other singer, Jonathan, he comes from Seville. So um, also a long history in his family. And the guitarist actually came to Calgary's festival. Calgary used to have a festival for about five years. They had one a couple of years ago. He was the guest a couple of years ago. So it's oh. it's kind of funny. We were like, oh, well, I guess I'll see you again because I, I saw him perform at that one. And yeah, it's kind of cool. Great. Yeah. Well, what can we expect from the show? What what Tell us what we're going to see. Oh, well, so we have a special acoustic floor that we put on that Windspear stage, especially so you can hear the footwork. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see some really authentic, traditional, kind of this that feeding off each other that passion that drama but not you know not in that kind of flashy way like like we would think of a Vegas show or like a Cirque du Soleil like just in a a really human authentic performance Mm -hmm. that it's something flamenco is really good at when you see a really good flamenco show it's this just human 
performance. And I think the, the reason people become, you know, when you start learning flamenco that you become addicted is because suddenly it makes you do that. It makes you look for that in yourself. Even if you're just an audience member, you, you end up confronting these things in yourself that are so human that we all have. And a really good performer will. We'll do that for you without making you feel, oh, they kind of went too far. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I find it really emotive, but not angsty. Yeah. Like, it just, it has a maturity to it, I think, that um, even even the touristy shows in Spain, um, you get this opportunity to see this very, like, a very special, intimate show yes. um, with very skilled performers. Um, and one thing that I really appreciated while I was traveling um, through Barcelona and Madrid and Seville was that um, I felt that there were so many dancers being employed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's actually an industry for dancers to to work there. I mean, other than you know, professional companies here like the ballet, mm. um, it's it's really hard to sort of like make a living as a dancer in, right. in North America. Yes, um, or you know, in Edmonton. I'll yeah. So, so it was kind of refreshing to see that you know Spain is full of this industry where that is like supportive of of dancers, and you know, um, flamenco has also been designated one of the UNESCO um, masterpieces of intangible cultural heritage. humanity yeah, or something, something yes, like that, yeah. um, heritage of humanity. Um, so you know, it's it's a special thing. It yeah. is, it is a super special thing, and you know, those touristy spots, all the performance is always amazing. It's not the performance that's the issue; it's that you're you're with tourists. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're a tourist too, yeah, so you can't complain. Too, so it's the way that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Um. Right. So, well, what are some of the differences between um, maybe what we're going to see from the performers that we're bringing in from Spain mm-hmm. to what happens in in you know kind of like Canadian or American stages generally when you see flamenco? Yeah, I think often here people are trying to they're trying. To sell to the North American audience based on what everything that happens to North American audiences here, you know, so they're like, oh, we're going to do this choreographed show and it's going to be flashy and whatever. And it's it's it kind of doesn't really fit with what flamenco really should feel like. And so at the same time, it's sort of a compromise for those audiences because flamenco can be a little bit startling if you're mm. if you're not a person that wants to have that kind of experience and you just think you're going to some kind of Vegas-style show and maybe not even Vegas-style, but we're so used to choreographed, you know, complete things here that are just, it's presented this way and it's everything's, it's to be beautiful and it's to be, you know, one set way. And so... What we bring is people that know they, I mean, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be all those things, but it's not going to feel like it's set for you like that because it isn't. It's it's an in-the-moment experience that's really... Mm-hmm. That's really why we bring who we bring. Yeah. yeah. In the, in that way, do you think that you can classify flamenco like you would c- classify almost any other kind of dance? Like, is it folkloric? Is it is it you know a cultural dance? Is it what what how how would you describe it? I think that's a really tough one. Like, it's not folkloric because folkloric dances have a set form, you know. And there mm-hmm. are some folkloric dances that have been flamencoized, like Sevillanas, for instance those kind of things but no it's it's ever evolving so anytime i i perform i never do the same it's never the same and anytime you you create a new piece or you're never you're just trying to keep within the realm of that emotion and that that song form and but you're always exploring it and and the people you're working with are always exploring it and so yeah for me it's one of the 
it has such parameters and of course it has really cultural parameters as well but it's to me it's one of the most evolving art forms I've worked with and when I sometimes when I see um, modern or contemporary dance I go oh yeah same idea right like Mm. flamenco is doing that it's doing that exploring why this movement but just within really set parameters you know Mm -hmm. it just it has its own parameters that's all but yeah for me it's it's really modern Right. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, you know, a lot of the cultural conversations that we're having right now are, you know, um, having to do with if, if a certain culture has ownership over a form, mm-hmm. um, you know, what does it mean when people who are not from that culture are doing are, 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 you know, also kind of either exploring or studying or performing themselves? So how do you feel about that sort of, I mean, I'll, I'll pull out the word that kind of appropriation thing. If people are not of Spanish descent, mm. um, you know, it, how do they enjoy this? What's <laughs> well? This is a really interesting thing, right? Of course, because I'm I'm not Spanish, and I mean I'm I'm really really not. <laughs> but um, it it is flamenco has become such a worldwide phenomenon, and I don't think you can ignore that. Um, often they say that if if the Japanese that were coming to Spain hadn't become so interested in flamenco, the art form may not have survived. Because honestly there's almost more flamenco in Japan than in Spain. I read that. I heard that too. Really. And that sort of aficion for it has really, really helped the art form as a whole. But at the same time, there's no denying this is a cultural art form. And so for me... Not I, I have to go back to Spain to continue to study. Why wouldn't I do that? It doesn't make any sense not to do that. And so if I was ever going to bring artists here, of course I would bring artists from Spain. That's what I... That's what I would like to do, and I think it's really vital that we do that so that people do understand, no, no, this is a whole, this is a culturally based art form, and these people are from that culture, and that, you know, I think it's really, really important, but it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate flamenco the world over, because there's really high-level flamenco the world over, and people that, you know, they dedicate their lives to that, And mm-hmm. but it, it really is, it's that having respect for where it comes from, having respect for to continue to go back and go back to the source. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, give us the details on on um, what's happening at the festival. What? How can the public participate? So the main way the public can participate is at the main stage show. It's called Tierra Flamenca, and it's at the Winspire on April 12th. Um, and then after that, we have workshops with the uh, two dancers and Ismael the singer all weekend, but those are mainly for flamencos because flamenco is such a... Oh, it's such a technical, complicated art form that we want. We want people there that already know a bit, and we have such a base of students that it's it's kind of almost filled up, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, um, and then we also have the opportunity for guitar classes, but that's because there's so few flamenco guitarists in Edmonton. There are some, but they're all sort of doing different things. Mm-hmm. It's not really feasible to set up a workshop. So we have a guitar coordinator that people that are interested should email him and just say, hey, I would like something because you never know who else has emailed and said, you know, and then we can put a little group together. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and, that, so, and that performance again is at April, on April 12th at the Winspear Center um, and people can go to the Winspear website or edmontonflamencofestival.com and Correct. find out more. Yes. Um, also, if someone is a beginner and they you know like they they don't even know how to clap <laughs> like normally <laughs> um wh- where could someone get started oh so you know you just have to google edmonton flamenco there's so much going on in the city there's a few different teachers it's not hard to find flamenco here 
So yeah, no, right. no, no lack of ability there, but not not at the festival. Yeah, <laughs> lots of options. Of course, I have no excuse to not Google flamenco <laughs> and try and find a class to take. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jane, for being on the podcast today. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. On the latest episode of the Well Endowed podcast, you'll hear Chris Chang Yen Phillips speaking with Stuart Lemoyne about the beautiful new Varscona Theatre. And Edmonton Arts Council's Sanjay Shahani gives an update on Connections and Exchanges, the 10 year plan to transform arts and heritage in Edmonton. To listen to more episodes and find out more about Edmonton Community Foundation's projects, visit thewellendowedpodcast.com. The Alberta Podcast Network is now celebrating the success of our members at the Canadian Podcast Awards. Congratulations to Cross Pollination, which was named the Outstanding Business Series, and the Bothy Storytelling Podcast, which was named Outstanding Art Series. To listen and find out more about these award-winning podcasts and all of APN's members, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. Woo! That was a long one. Great. Thanks to everyone, um, Matthew Stepanek, Colleen Fian, and Jane Ogilvie for uh, joining me on the episode this week. Um, we've got a lot of things happening um, in town uh, until April 7th. Slight of Mind is also running at the Citadel. That's by Beth Graham and Theatre Yes. And it's running in every space in the building except the club at the Citadel Theatre. Um, and until April 21st, as previously mentioned, The Candidate and The Party by Kat Sandler and Daryl Cloran is running at the Citadel. Um, April 6th, 9th, and 12th, The Misadventures of Count Ori, Edmonton Opera, uh, is running at the Jubilee Auditorium. And something I'm really excited about, Fun Home, uh, the musical is being produced by Plain Jane Theatre at the Varscona Theatre. It runs April 11th through 20th. And um, as mentioned with uh, Jane's interview, the Edmonton Flamenco Festival's headline performance, Tierra Flamenca, is running at the Winspear Centre on April 12th. And we're going to do a ticket giveaway for that too so stay in tune uh, uh stay keep keep an eye on our social media for for uh if you want to try and win those so um thanks for listening everyone uh, i hope you have a great week go see some shows bye i don't get it is a member of the alberta podcast network powered by atb you can subscribe to us on apple podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the ckua radio app I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenov.